I am talking this week about um, developing a deep intimacy with our experience, which is one of my favorite definitions of equanimity. And it's, I think, once again, really important to investigate this idea of being fully, fully with our experience without preference. That's the rest of it. Being intimate with our experience, being intimate with um, ourselves without preference because of, you know, I feel like I've given this talk so much over the last few years, but because there's been so much going on and, you know, there's because of this week, there's the, the horror in Israel and Gaza and, you know, like I said, over the years, there's been just this exponential growth of, of, of stuff that we've had to deal with. I mean, the pandemic and racial injustice and economic disparities and the, the rise of hate everywhere um, and intolerance and the ravages of climate change. And it's all so painful. And so there's the world we're living in, which is just um, causing so much discomfort, so much unease, so much suffering. And then we have our own personal lives that we're dealing with many, many, many different issues with with the human condition, with aging, with sickness, with death, with, with um, difficult circumstances. I know personally there's been a whole run of those things of I'm fine, but it seems like my world, a lot of people in my world are experiencing a lot of, a lot of difficult things. Um, and so to hold a lot of this stuff, um, how do we hold it? How do we become intimate with it? How do we, as I like to talk about, live with an undefended heart? Because undefended heart is also, I think, what equanimity is. We have no barriers to the reality of the moment. We sit with our experience without preference. And um, the Buddha asked us to do this, and the Buddha talks about this, and the instructions he gives are in the Satipatthana Sutta, you know, those, the invitation, the, the practice of mindfulness. But what I really like to, um, I really like the, uh, another translation, Sati, often translated as mindfulness, also means to be with. How are we with this moment? And sometimes we don't want to be intimate. Anybody? Anybody? <laughs> sometimes it's like too much. Uh, and I get it. And it can be terrifying. And we've spent years trying to get away from those feelings. Um, but that pushing away reality is really what the second noble truth is. You know, the first noble truth is that there is suffering. There's birth, there's death, there's sickness, there's separation. There's all these things. And the second noble truth is our inability to be with that. That's the root of this suffering. The root of dukkha is wanting things to be different from the way they are. This inability to be fully present. And the way out of that, there is a way out, and that's through... Um, the Eightfold Path, which contains mindfulness and wise, wise views, seeing things clearly. And we can't see things clearly unless we're willing to be still and open up to it. And I find 
what's most helpful if we want to move in this direction of being open to the present moment, I always think it's helpful to see what gets in the way. If I want to do a particular thing, what's keeping me from doing that? If I'm not able to do it, what, what's getting in the way? And I think a huge part of what gets in our way is our conditioning. We are conditioned beings. Um, we are conditioned by our families and society and the message we see on social media, on the sides of buses and magazines, everywhere there's somebody telling us um, what we should look like, what we shouldn't like, like, look like, how we should dress, who we should love, how we should love, what we should study, what we shouldn't study. Um, what questions we should ask, what questions we shouldn't ask, what we should drink, how we should feel. Because oftentimes there's the societal conditioning, but then there's familial conditioning and conditioning we get in religion and school and from our peers. And that tells us what's, um, what emotions are proper or what emotions are improper or how long to feel them. I was on, listening to the radio as I was driving this morning and I, I, this song lyric um, came on, and I can't remember exactly what it was, but it was basically, everyone knows that men aren't supposed to cry. Songs are telling us, you know, how to feel or how not to behave. And so it's extraordinary. And we don't, if, oftentimes we never, we don't think about it. We just absorb it. We just absorb it. And many times we're conditioned by our actual experiences that have been painful. We have some, something happened to us that's been so painful to us that we do everything in our power not to remember, not to repeat. Um, we'll do whatever we can to not feel that way again. And so we develop ways of coping. We develop ways of moving through the world that keep us in these little boxes that keep us um, uh, moving in a particular direction or acting in particular ways. And most of this is subconscious. Most of this is subconscious. And then I also think about the song, the old Simon and Garfunkel song, I Am a Rock, which if you're familiar with that, he talks about, you know, he was hurt by love and he's like, well, I'm never going to be hurt by love. I have my books and my poetry to protect me. I'm shielded in my armor. I mean, that's a line from the song. I touch no one and no one touches me. And it's like, that's a recipe for just a happy life. Um, but it's, you know, we, protect, we keep everyone out, but we also keep ourselves in when we build up this wall, when we build up this armor. So sometimes it is intentional. But other times, or much of the time, it's unintentional, and we don't even realize we're doing it. We don't realize we're blocking ourselves off from, from feeling, uh, or we're chasing something that's, that's impossible to achieve, looking like a particular way, or behaving, or not having certain feelings, which is just the craziest thing in the world, uh, to think that you can not have a particular feeling, because they're going to show up. Um, and so we do whatever we can to avoid it. Um, many times we, we drink, we drug, we shop, we have sex, we work nonstop, we get caught up in gambling, all kinds of things. We play solitaire for 14 hours a day. Whatever it is, we do whatever we can to 
excuse me, avoid feeling. Um, and we create these fixed views of should and could and must to think that we will be safe and that we will not hurt and will be okay. And we just don't want to feel. And we think we succeed, but all we've succeeded in doing is distorting our perception and creating an alternate reality. Like the idea of being perfect. I had a lot of us suffer from perfectionism. I think it's a cultural thing in the US, this, this idea of perfectionism and that if you are perfect, then it'll be okay. If I'm perfect, then they can't get me. I'm bulletproof if I'm perfect. And the problem is it's impossible to be perfect. So you, you're going to fail and then you fail. And then there's the judgment and the criticism. So it's this vicious cycle. But without thinking about it, we're constantly trying to do these things. Um, and we continue stuffing those feelings and, and try harder and work more and be more productive or whatever it is. You know, and, I, and I've shared this before that I grew up in a house where, at least to my mind, it was not safe to share things that people didn't like because it, it, I got yelled at, I got smacked, whatever happened. And so I learned to just be quiet. Don't make mistakes. Don't say anything somebody won't like and you'll be okay. And I carried that with me for years. I st it's still, I have it to a, a, a certain extent, but I just didn't say anything. I could never express an opinion. And you say, what kind, of rec what kind of music do you like, Mary? I'm like, I don't know, what do you like? And they tell me and I go, oh, I like that too, even if I didn't, because I was so afraid of not being liked, not being accepted. And that's a really, a lot of us go through the life with this fear of not being loved or not being accepted or being on the outside looking in. All these different things is as a result of our conditioning because we don't, we don't look like other people. We don't love the same people, whatever it is. We speak a different language. It's this, the othering that goes on and is promulgated by so much of the world we live in is so painful. And so um, we cling to these ideas of should, and to cling is to suffer. That was the, the one retreat I went on. That was the line I came out with, to cling is to suffer. So how do we let go? You know, and, and much of the time the answer is practice, but a lot of times practice seems to make it worse. Because um, if you've ever, <laughs> I know we've all experienced this, and, and people who come to, when I do intro to meditation, I ask folks why they're there, and oftentimes they say they just want to bliss out, and I'm, I have to break the bad news to them. I'm like, mm, maybe at some point you will bliss out, but probably at the outset it might be a little challenging because when you begin to quiet the mind, a lot of this stuff that's been percolating beneath the surface starts coming up and you have to start those just uncomfortable feelings and the the stories and the the all the stuff just shows up but you know the invitation is to practice and that's what the the four foundations of mindfulness that the buddha taught really point to and it's this the buddha was so logical 
this, this is the way you turn towards reality. This is the way you begin to disentangle yourself from those old habitual stories, the habitual patterns of thinking. You know, we begin to move towards reality instead of away from it. And Arena Weissman um, said one time, she was a teacher, uh, an old teacher of mine, she said, much of our practice is in seeing our relationship to our situation. We begin to see what's going on rather than just reacting. And so the first, first foundation of mindfulness is the somatic experience, the breath and body awareness. We see the body as an instrument of awakening because we've lived so long from the head up and we're so disconnected, but the body... I think the Buddha even said in this fathom-long body is, is the tool of awakening, is everything you need to awaken. The wisdom, emotions, feelings. They're right here. But we're so disconnected because we live in a world of logic and reasoning and, and, and science. Not saying that stuff is bad. It's necessary. But not to the exclusion of emotions and feelings, and connecting with um, what's here, this wisdom that's present. Um, this is, and I'll, I'll, I'll expound my theory of aliens at this point in time, that aliens have, our image of aliens, the typical image of an alien is the ginormous head with the withered body, because it's all brain and no, no emotion, no feeling, the body is unnecessary, just head. And um, that's kind of, that, that mirrors the, the world we live in. And so this reconnection to the body, you know, the 32 parts of the body, also the recognition of the, the impermanence of the body, but to ground yourself, to start feeling those different sensations that are present, to just be with them is really powerful. I know was, once I started doing body scanning practice, it was like a game changer really powerful. And then the second foundation is also extremely important. It's the, it's the recognizing whether things are pleasant or unpleasant or neutral because we see those, that pause. Instead of reacti re reacting, oh, unpleasant, push it away, pleasant, want more. We pause and we say, oh, this is unpleasant. And the tendency with unpleasant is to move into aversion. But maybe that's not the appropriate response. That's just the reactivity. And so when we get to the second um, foundation, there's this ability to begin to let go of reactivity. And awareness allows us to have a grasp of reality. What is more appropriate? You know, just because somebody cuts us off on the freeway, it doesn't mean we should chase them down and yell at them. That is not necessarily a wise thing to do. Or whatever our reactivity is in various situations. How often have you done something? It's like, why did I do that? I didn't want it because we didn't think. We just reacted, reacted, reacted. And when we begin to slow down, A, we begin to feel the experience in the body. Ooh, unpleasant. And then we have an, it, it, it reaches our awareness. 
And we don't have to be a, a, we don't have to be trapped by it. We can say, "Oh, I see this." We begin to, and then the third foundation, we begin to recognize those moods of the mind, like when things are calm or peaceful or agitated and restless or cranky. I remember the first time I actually named crankiness. I used to feel cranky, and then I'd be like, oh, you're not supposed to feel this way. And then I went, oh, I'm just cranky. And just let it be. Instead of making it a personal thing, it's just like, oh, there's some crankiness. So we begin to recognize, and you see the, the brilliance of the, these foundations as you start with the sensation in the body, and then you begin to recognize pleasant, unpleasant. And then you can maybe acknowledge what it is, this mood. And then you really, the fourth foundation is getting into the, the patterns of the mental states, recognizing what leads you to awareness or leads you away from awareness, leads you to liberation or what gets in the way of liberation. And if, uh, if you're familiar with the fourth foundation of mindfulness, there are five sets of, of teachings. There's a Four Noble Truths, there's the aggregates, there's the hindrances, there's the seven factors of awakening, and there's the one I'm forgetting at the moment, but that's okay. Um, but Bhikkhu Analio, if you're familiar with Bhikkhu Analio, he's a, he's a monk who is a scholar and has done a lot of translations of a lot of texts, and he said in the, the two sets of um, of there are two sets that are common to all the different um, versions that are extant of the Satipatthana Sutta in Pali and Chinese, and those are the hindrances and the awakening factors. And they kind of, the hindrances are what get in the way of the awakening factors. The hindrances are craving and aversion and restlessness and worry and, and dullness and torpor and doubt. Those are the things that take us into this reactivity and the conditioning and the craving and the not wanting and the lost in the stories. But the seven factors of awakening are what really bring us into the path towards liberation, and that is mindfulness. Paying attention. What is this? You can't have any of this without mindfulness. You can't have any awakening if you're not present. So there's mindfulness. And then there's investigation, a curiosity. What is this? Oh, is it crankiness? Is it ease? Is it discomfort? Is it a craving? So there's a clarity without being sucked into it, just an awareness of it. And then there's an effort to stay present to let go of the habitual response. You know, when you, if you're, you may have these, these thought patterns that just show up. Somebody says something to you and you start going down. Somebody doesn't return a phone call. And then that old story comes up. This means this, and this must mean that, and then da 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 And you go back and forth and back and forth. In fact, I saw something fairly recently where there was... Uh, this this thing, somebody texts something and one person's getting the text and going, oh, that's great. 
And then they text back and the person on the other side is going, how dare they say that? And one person is really happy with the text exchange and the other person totally misreading it. Anyway, we, we make up all these things in our mind. That's the habitual thought patterns that we get lost in. And the effort in this factor, the factor of awakening effort is to come back from that. Really intentionally do it. And I'm going to read a paragraph that I love from Larry Ward's book, um, America's Racial Karma. He talks, he says, most of us know that changing habits is challenging. How much of what we do is habitual? Studies by neurobiologists and psychologists researching habit formation indicate that 40 to 95% of human behavior, how we think, how we respond with emotions, what we say, and how we act, falls into the habit category. So when it comes to deeply rooted thoughts and behavior, however good we think our intentions may be, without insight into the need about the need to change, the strong resolve to make it happen, and the corresponding action, a good 50% of the time will default to habit. So this, these factors of awakening, mindfulness, paying attention, asking, what is this? And then the resolve, the energy to let go. Because even if, feels, if it feels crummy, it's familiar. And we have to be willing to let go of the familiar because it's getting in the way of our liberation, of our freedom. And then when you can, can move past that, there's this joy and tranquility that arises. I was talking about in the meditation instructions, the stillness that's present, this tranquility, regardless of the sensation. Because you're not fighting it. There's no agitation. I don't want this. The more we fight reality, the more intense it becomes. It kind of really exacerbates it. If you're like, no, this is bad, instead of just, you know, letting it be, you kind of make it worse and worse and intensifies. But if you can say, okay, this is the way it is. Right now it's like this. There's an ease and a joy that comes from not fighting. And then there's this collectedness of mind, samadhi, this just being in awareness. And then the last factor of awakening is equanimity. Not being able to be intimate with your experience without preference. I'm not attached to anything. I don't need it to be a certain way to have ease. Now, it's also important to remember that it doesn't mean we just are passive and doormats. When things are, when there's something causing harm, we can work to change it but we have to acknowledge it's present first and say, okay, what's the next step that I can take? Rather than saying, no, I don't want to feel this. It's like, okay, this is what's happening. How do we work to end it? What do we do? What's the next, next step? So that, that's the important thing to remember. So that's the invitation to move to this, to de develop an intimacy with our experience, to sit and we begin to recognize that oftentimes the fear of turning towards our emotions 
is much worse than the actual feeling of them in themselves. You know, the, I don't want to feel this, uh, um, I've got this stuff down. I, for me, my, you know, is my father died when I was five. And it was just like, okay, he's dead. Now we go about our lives. And um, apparently that impacted me a lot more than I knew. But I didn't realize it until I was really getting into formal practice. And then all of a sudden, all this stuff, all this grief started coming up, all this sadness, all this, oh my God, you know, these things, and which I apparently had kept down, not intentionally or consciously, but that they were just like, I'm not going to feel that because I don't know how to deal with this. And then when I started sitting, this stuff started coming up and it was like, and then when you finally turn towards it, and this is the important part, with compassion, it's not just an intellectual understanding, but there's the heart that's also involved in this awakening. There's a compassion and a kindness and a softness that we hold our emotions with. We make a space for them for perhaps the first time ever, especially if we've been taught that certain things are not okay. We invite them in with gentleness. You know, we invite them in. And the idea, as I said, the idea of what they might be like is often so much worse than what they are. Um, the Buddha talks many, many times in the suttas about how we sit with a heart imbued with loving kindness and compassion and, and um, appreciative joy and equanimity. We greet the world with kindness. The metta sutta. You know, all beings, omitting none, including ourselves, we're included in all beings, it's not just them, it's us too. We greet our, we're kind to ourselves, an open heart, so that the heart is undefended to our own experience. And the more we can open our hearts to ourselves, it activates those parts in our brain of empathy and compassion for others. So we no longer have to create these ideas of separation to keep ourselves safe. We greet the world with kindness. We greet the world with compassion. We have, we have empathy for the suffering of others as well. You know? Really important. And there's a freedom that comes with this vulnerability. There's a freedom that comes with embracing the human condition. It is not... Um, yeah, it's, it's, so, it's seemingly counterintuitive because you would think that building up walls is the way to stay safe. But actually this vulnerability is a way to connect with others. And that's really is what is so nourishing, this connection with others. It's not being a rock on an island with your books and your poetry. It's being open to others and that shared humanity. It's so powerful. It's so powerful. And we see how um, poisonous it is when it's not. You know, they talk, they, they call sometimes greed, hatred, and ignorance the three poisons. And they are because they just poison the world. They cause so much harm. And so, you know, people who, people who cause this destruction, cause all this violence, are so disconnected from their own experience. 
so disconnected because if you're connected to your own experience it's unless you're perhaps a sociopath it's probably really difficult to to cause this harm to others there's such a barrier such a barrier so um i also want to say that mindfulness is not a panacea it's not necessarily for everyone especially folks with trauma there's a book um a very good book called trauma sensitive mindfulness that talks about this that some people have these that mindfulness and and turning towards things can be really agitating and and um not really the most wise thing to do not nece- necessarily the most skillful thing so really be cautious about how you do this dip your toe in work with a work with someone who can can um uh work with someone you trust um if you're going to start turning towards these emotions because they can be really um a lot if you've not been willing to turn towards them you know how do you deal with anger if you've never dealt with the anger how do you deal with grief if you've never been willing to turn towards grief and all of a sudden here it is i mean that's why the compassion is so important we get out of the judgment and instead go yeah it's like this right now it's like this and you see me i'm putting my hand on my heart and my body holding yourself in this way is really uh beneficial as well when you're beginning to touch into some of these emotions that are challenging um and when you start doing this just start where you are you don't have to solve all of the things at once but what's right in, what's in your way right now where's the dukkha in this moment that's where you want to start that's where you want to start probing and putting your toe in and then last but not least i'm going to say do not forget the joy because there is joy too it's not all awfulness there can be there can be one moment of grief and sadness and then there can be the next moment of joy what you have to do is be present for what's here in this moment without preference i know sometimes i've been in grief and then i start to feel it dissipate and then i'm like no come back it's so cathartic i need to feel you some more but it's like going away it's like let it go away or you're you're experiencing some joy and some happiness and you go i'm i shouldn't be feeling this because there's so much suffering in the world and when every time you do that when you say no i can't experience that or wait i'm not done feeling that you're you're saying no to reality you're not you're you're you've coming you're coming to your experience with a preference and instead you just have to say right now it's like this let me be in the moment let go of what i think should be happening and be with what is happening so thank you so much my friends um and i wish you a beautiful journey towards an undefended heart i wish you uh the capacity to be present without preference um i'm not there and recognize it's not something that you're going to get by by the end of the year um uh it takes a minute i have uh these things don't develop overnight um however old you are that's how long they've been percolating and i like to say i'm not dead so i'm not done and um yeah thank you thank you thank you and i hope this has been of some benefit
Thank you for visiting Undefended Dharma. These teachings are freely offered. However, if you would like to make a donation to help support the technology that makes these podcasts possible, please visit marystancavage.org backslash support. Thank you.